Amen. Well, this is our last Sunday in a sermon series that we've been calling Faithful Questions. Because one of the things I believe is that our questions are not something that we ought to skirt away of, away from, or our doubts for that matter, but in fact are something that help us grow deeper in our knowledge and love of God, as well as create space for others to go deeper in communion with us and in friendship with one another. Because if you don't have space to ask a question, you probably don't feel like the song we sang where there's a seat at the table for you, right? And so we've been exploring different questions that we have, whether it's about the Bible, whether it's about women throughout history like we did last week on Mother's Day, and we've been talking about some of the faithful questions that we have in hopes that, like Thomas, who said that he had to see in order to believe, we might ask questions and go deeper together. Well, this Sunday, we have a really riveting conversation that was spurred from one of our questions on the Trinity. And I had a preaching professor once say, don't ever try to preach on the Trinity because you'll lose everyone in the room. So here we go. I hope you stay with me together. And it's ironic, isn't it though? Don't ever preach on the Trinity was a recommendation, not because it wasn't important, because it was difficult. And the thing is, is that there is nothing more foundational for us in our faith and yet at the same time confusing and mysterious, and at the same time talked about the least than the Trinity. How many times have you heard it talked about directly from a sermon? The Bible is, well, relatively not super formed on it. The closest that we have to a, a description of the Trinity is somewhat from the scripture reading that we have. But we and I'd be the universal we, the Christian church, place ourselves within the history of a triune God that makes no sense. Because my keiki, who are in kindergarten and second grade, and even probably Stella, who's in preschool, can tell you that one plus one plus one equals three, right? That God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three, is what you would think, and yet we believe that they are one. So before we get into the semantics of what I think that this is, how we re like respond to this, let me tell you this, that the reason I think this is valuable for us is not for orthodoxy's sake. And what I mean by that is, I don't believe that the theology of the Trinity is important so you can go home and know what the church fathers and mothers believed was the accurate way to describe God. I think it's important because it has meaning and value to how we live here and now. That our theology shapes how we live here and now, and I think that our belief in the Trinity is something of a lost gem in our tradition. Because we hear sermons about Jesus, probably not in the Methodist Church, about the Holy Spirit too often, except on Pentecost, but certainly about God's love and God throughout history, we hear. So what is it? Three in one. And how do we describe it? The best way that it was ever described to me on the Trinity is music notes. Each one, or music chords, I should say, take a chord that's made up of three notes, 
distinct in character, and yet together creating a harmony. But the thing is, is that you can go astray in our theology, and it negatively affects how we live. Just for example, one of the early theologies of the Trinity was that you had God the Father, and then Jesus was a person adopted by God. And adopted into this fellowship and union, but it creates some problems in how it lives out because the problem is is that the God is this God of the cosmos, not super concerned with your body and my body and the earth, instead just a teacher among us. And I know that if you're not into philosophy and theology, you may not be loving and digging all the nuances and why they're important. But I believe that the Trinity reveals the beauty and the care and the love of God. In fact, the early fathers and mothers that decided upon the Nicene Creed talked about the way to describe the Trinity is not through analogy, but through economy. And what that meant by economy was the material experience. And the way to understand that, the description that kind of gathered them together was love. We hear in this passage, the word was with God, and then the word became flesh. That word is love. God speaks love. Jesus is that love, and the Holy Spirit helps us experience that love. Let me stop for a moment. God speaks love. Jesus is that love and the Holy Spirit helps us experience the love. One of the specific questions we were asked was, why did Jesus pray to God if Jesus was God? It's a unique question, isn't it? I could go into lots of things around the Christology, but St. Athanasius, when the early fathers around the 4th, 5th century, said that God cannot save that which God does not take on. Our belief in the Trinity has rooted a deep sense of the God who created everything becoming a body. Think about that. The God who created everything became flesh like the Gospel of John talks about. We celebrate it on Christmas as a miracle. But what does it mean for us? I've talked about Karl Barth many times, and if you have been in one of my Bible studies, you're probably rolling your eyes and saying you've heard enough. But the practical implication is huge. See, because Karl Barth was a theologian that was writing his work just around the time of the rise of the Third Reich in Germany. And he was disenfranchised by every single one of his professors that wrote a letter to the German people telling them to enlist in the war. And he said to himself, there must be something wrong with this theology if they're teaching people to go into this battle and to do these atrocious things. And so he went back to his books. 
and he decided that one of the biggest mistakes that Christians, and albeit humans, make is to project their sense of truth, of knowledge, of what is right upon God. That what I believe it means to look like to love someone, what I believe it means to look like to serve someone, what I believe is best for my community, what I believe is best for my family, is what God believes is best for my community, my family, my church. And if you're listening closely, there's a whole lot of mys in the projection that sometimes people place on God. And no matter what community you're a part of, we as humans tend to do it. We tend to think that we are, in fact, right, whether it's as an individual or as a collective. I say it over and over again. I don't believe that the worst people in history woke up in the morning and said, how will I be a bad person today? Right? They thought what they believed was right. And Bart saw it. And he said, why then? How do we do a theology? And he went to the incarnation. That God comes in Jesus is the answer. Now, some people might say that Jesus died on the cross so that I might live. And I say, well, there's some truth in that. Jesus came so that I might live. That the incarnation, that God in Christ coming to us is God's self-revelation of God's self to us. And what that means for us is that as much as you and I and we like to think we know who God is, we are always in need of the incarnation. That we will never be able to determine what the good looks like without receiving the gift of God's self. Jesus is humanity's ultimate no in the incarnation. No meaning that you and I are mired in sin, whether it's individual or structural, so much that we cannot break ourselves out of it, and even our vision of what we believe truth and good to look like is clouded by it. And as good as our intentions are, we will forever be in need of God breaking in to us and changing us. But friends, I don't know about you, but Jesus has yet to knock on the door of my church. <laughs> At least that in person. Jesus has yet to walk into my house and to do what Thomas did and let me touch his wounds. But friends, the Holy Spirit has. The Holy Spirit is the substance that helps us experience the break-in of Jesus into our lives and our world. Someone once told me, if you are a Christian, you ought to be ready for uncomfortability. 
which was a way of saying that we are always asking God to shape us and make us anew. One of the scariest but most faithful prayers that we can ask is, God, break me and my understanding so that you might remake me. And it's scary because holding on to what I know as true is so much more comfortable than being lost in my questions, in confusion, and in doubt. Which, friends, is why we have been in this series together. It's to acknowledge that the questions are not bad, but the questions are necessary. We're in the process of life change in the church. And if your life has not been changing, then we ought to be a people that finds ourselves on our knees and praying for the experience of the break-in of Jesus into our lives. We have been on a roller coaster this past year, right? (laughs) To say the least. And it is only this Sunday that we are able to sing again together. But friends, church consultants, researchers for Pew Research, everyone is telling us that changes brought on by the pandemic are not going to allow us to go back to normal. Because change is just a part of our faith journey. It's a part of our lives. It's what we ought to do over and over again. Shape me and remake me. Shape me and remake me. John Wesley, the founder, one of the founders of our branch of this triune faith, used to talk about being more perfect. And I despised that phrase (laughs) when I was learning about it. I'm sorry, friends, I'm not perfect, right? And I'm sorry, you're not perfect. And we're not perfect. But that's okay. Because only as we acknowledge our imperfection that we can allow God to perhaps change us. It's only as you acknowledge that perhaps you prioritize your time in ways that we know you ought not, or you know you ought not. And you acknowledge it and you pray to God, God, change me, that you might change. It's only when you acknowledge you've hurt your neighbor's feelings that you might do something different and move towards reconciliation. And friends, the beauty of the incarnation And so, and this is for, uh, I'm going to call him out, Bob Ritchie, because he asked me the question, but why did Jesus pray to God? It's because he's in it with us. That Jesus has lived alongside us and welcomes us, questions, doubts, 
and cries. That this thing we call the human experience is good and pleasing to God. And even upon the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's been in our shoes, that God was with us, beside us, in us. And that we can find ourselves in Christ. And so I hope that this series has driven one thing home. Ask more questions. Create the space for people to ask, to wonder, to doubt. Create the space for someone to cry, to celebrate. Create the space for all of us at the table like we sang in that song. Because that is what the Trinity is. Creating space for you and I. The reason we chose the metaphor dance for the first song. Someone once said to me, the Trinity is like a dance. And you're invited. Problem is, we don't know how to do it. <laughs> so we need Jesus to show us how. And I know you're not walking away with lots of answers. But I hope you know that God is love. And the love is the spoken word of God the experience of Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit bringing us to that table where we come to know and love Jesus, and we might live that love in the world. I invite you to pray with me.